Support for the Double Dome podcast comes from the Sorrell College of Business at Troy University, where students become geeks, an acronym for globally aware, ethical decision makers, engaged with the business community, knowledgeable to compete, and successful in business and life. More information at troy.edu business. The opinions expressed on this program represent the viewpoints of individual authors or contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of Troy University. This is eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter. Hello and welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dan Sutter of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. Money is indispensable as a medium of exchange, and throughout its history, the form of money has changed and evolved. As banking and finances moved online, it only makes sense that money will frequently be virtual as well. The Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury Department are exploring the potential for a central bank digital currency, or a digital dollar, that could potentially replace the, our current dollar. Over 100 countries in the European Union are also exploring the possibility of a, a central bank digital currency as well. What would be the economic benefits and costs of a, uh, su such a move or a digital dollar? Joining me to talk about this on the show today is Dr. Scott Burns. He was a professor of economics at Southeastern, University, Southeastern Louisiana University in, uh, I think, Hammond, Louisiana. He earned a, a bachelor's degree from LSU and master's and uh, PhD degrees from George Mason University. He's published over a dozen journal articles in outlets like the Journal of Institutional Economics, the Journal of Regional Regulatory Economics, the Cato Journal, and the Journal of Private Enterprise. Prior to teaching at Southeastern Louisiana, Dr. Burns taught at Troy University and he was part of the Johnson Center. So welcome back to eConversation, Scott. Thank you, Dan. It's really good to be back on. Well, Let's get started here, and uh, I, I mentioned that money's a, a medium of exchange. That's, that's a, a term we uh, certainly introduce to our, our students in economics, but re remind mm -hmm. us briefly, what exactly do, does a, a medium of exchange do for us? Well, I think a good little thing to add to the beginning of your description is that money is a commonly accepted medium of exchange. There's a whole bunch of things that we could use as medium of exchange. That just means things that we can use to facilitate trade, um, you know, we can think about things like barter transactions. You and I can conduct barter transactions where, we're, where we are trading one good for another, but that's extremely costly to try to do that. If you and I are trying to engage in barter transactions where you trade me your tie in exchange for my suit, which would be a very bad tra trade, by the way, but nevertheless, those are very difficult transactions to conduct because we have to find goods that both you want and I have and that I want that you have. That's not always going to be easy to do. It's a lot easier to engage in trade with people when there's a commonly accepted medium of exchange. One good that we know that everybody values, or at the very least, even if we don't want to directly consume it ourselves, we know that we can easily trade it in exchange for things that we actually want. This is a big reason why, Dan, things like gold and silver naturally emerged over time mm -hmm. as money, as commonly accepted mediums of exchange. Because even though you and I might not eat gold or silver, we might not use it to build our houses or our toilets or anything like that, we know for a fact that if we trade and receive gold and silver in exchange, it's pretty easy to trade that for the things that we want. And so that's the idea behind money. Money facilitates exchange. The way that we phrase in economics, 
money reduces transactions costs. It makes it easier, in other words, for us to engage in transactions and get the things that we ultimately want. We mentioned gold and silver. Those were things that kind of naturally emerged over time as money because they were uh, they, they contained all the key characteristics that people look for in money. They're portable. They're divisible. You can break them into smaller and larger denominations. They're fairly uniform in value, et cetera. But as you're kind of alluding to, money evolves a lot over time. Mm -hmm. And now most of the money that we use doesn't come in a physical form, like that gold and silver coin that we might have used 500 years ago, or even like the physical pieces of paper, the cash that we use today and that we've used a lot over the past century in the U.S. economy. Now I'd say the vast majority of transactions are not conducted using paper currency or coins. They're conducted digitally. And mm -hmm. so the question that we're really getting into today with central bank digital currency, you're going to hear me say CBDC sometimes. It's kind of an abbreviation for central bank digital currency. But that's basically the Fed, the Federal Reserve, the central bank of the United States, their way of trying to get into this digital money market and provide their own form of digital money rather than relying on private banks to offer it instead. So let's talk about one thing you mentioned about money going online. Uh, people hear about uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, and they might think, well, once you think of a di digital dollar, is that just uh, another form uh, of Bitcoin or a, a cryptocurrency? Or what's the difference? So there is a key distinction. Central bank digital currency is dollar denominated, and Bitcoin is not. What I mean by that is basically this. Even though they're both potentially digital, um, with something like Bitcoin, Bitcoin is its own kind of form of money. It's not mm -hmm. denominated in dollars. It's true that a lot of people who transact in Bitcoin very quickly will cash that out into dollars. But you actually don't denominate anything. You don't have to denominate Bitcoin transactions in dollars. It's kind of its own monetary standard, if that makes sense. Its own form of what we in monetary economics might call a basic or outside form of money. Something that's not issued by the banking system, that's treated as an ultimate form of money. Central bank digital currency is different because it is ultimately denominated in U.S. dollars. It's not a separate form of outside money. And one of the benefits to the U.S. government of that is things like Bitcoin are kind of a threat to the U.S. dollar, at least potentially. If a bunch of people stopped using dollars and started using Bitcoin, then that would threaten the U.S.'s reserve currency status. It would threaten um, a lot of the kind of influence that the Federal Reserve has over not just the U.S. banking system and money supply, but the global monetary system. But central bank digital currency wouldn't do that. It's still dollar denominated. It's not a separate form of money. It's just another payment mechanism, basically. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the reasons why the Fed is interested in this. They see the competition coming from not just Bitcoin, but all the, all the other cryptocurrencies out there. And even other central banks talking about experimenting with cryptocurrencies and central bank digital currency, and the Fed's basically saying we want to be ahead of the game. We want to stay ahead of the game and potentially offer these services ourselves so that other countries, other central bank, and other private companies and um, monetary issuers, cryptocurrencies, don't beat us to that digital marketplace. And, and it's important to remember that at this point, the, the Fed is only thinking about uh, the po possibilities with a, a central bank digital currency. There's nothing, certainly, any kind of concrete plan. So as we talk about some of these aspects, where the, nothing's written in stone in terms of, or even whether we're going to go forward with a, a digital uh, currency. Where, so we're, we're going to be talking about some possibilities here. These are not necessarily the, the certainties of, of what's going to happen. Right. And, and one 
level where there's some uh, distinction about where uh, the, the path that uh, digital currency or digital dollars could go forward is a distinction between a, a retail central bank digital currency and a wholesale central bank digital currency. So if you could explain for us what this, this difference would be. Yeah, that's a very important distinction. Um, a retail CBDC, a retail central bank digital currency, that means that a central bank, like the Federal Reserve in our case in the United States, would be offering these CBDC accounts directly to the public, cutting out the middleman of bank, in other words. So what that basically means, if you have a retail CBDC, then in theory, you could open an account at the Federal Reserve, the Central Bank of the United States. Right now, you and I as private individuals, we can't do that. The Federal Reserve is what we might call a banker's bank. It's a central bank, basically meaning that it serves as the bank for all the banks in the banking system. It's how banks settle payments between them. It's where the clearinghouse is located. Um, it's basically just a banker's bank. But one of the ideas that some people put forward for CBDC is, why don't we make the Federal Reserve open not just to banks in the United States, but to everybody? Mm -hmm. um, some people call this central banking for all or banking for all. They talk about ideas like Fed accounts, which is basically just this idea of letting ordinary individuals open up a savings account, a checking account at the Federal Reserve itself, cutting out the middleman of using private banks themselves. At first, this idea of retail CBDC might seem like a good idea, a way of streamlining the banking system by cutting out the middleman of private banks and just letting people go to the school, go to the Federal Reserve to open accounts. But you and I have been teaching economics for quite some time, and one of the things that we teach a lot of times in our micro 101 classes is that middlemen are not necessarily bad for the economy, especially because a lot of times middlemen offer services and facilitate transactions in ways that actually increase economic efficiency. Just to use an example, Amazon doesn't really produce anything directly itself. Right. Amazon is mostly a middleman. They're facilitating transactions. They're helping me connect to a shirt producer in Bangladesh and get a shirt more easily online, digitally. And I wouldn't be able to do that myself. I'm not going to get on a plane and fly to Bangladesh to price compare shirts made there versus here, et cetera. So you would agree that Amazon and eBay and companies like that provide really efficient middlemen services. The same is true of banks. Private banks are much more efficient at offering the financial services that we benefit from. In fact, one thing that we'll talk about too is most of the innovations in money that have been really good for us, whether it's a movement to digital money, a movement away from just using cash, gold and silver coins, to using things like uh, checks, and deposit transfers. Probably 95% of the transactions that you and I engage in on a daily basis, Dan, are transactions that were made possible by innovations by private banks, yeah. using forms of money that are liabilities of or issued by those private banks. And so I worry sometimes that the idea of CBDC, that we risk throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yes, this new, these new digital innovations and payments are a great thing, but I don't want to throw out the private banking sector with mm -hmm. it, or at least um, reduce the scale and scope of the private banking sector by having the Fed get involved here, because that is one of the risks of having retail CBDC. If I can use a metaphor real quick, because I want to make sure to wrap up this point about what retail CBDC is. The analogy I like to think of whenever people talk about retail central bank digital currency, so offering digital currency directly from the Fed to you and me, ordinary citizens, is kind of like the public option uh, in healthcare terms. Um, a lot of people who want to have universal financial, um, I'm sorry, universal healthcare access, for instance, make the argument that we should just have the government offer a public option to Americans mm -hmm. and then 
we as individuals can choose between using a private insurance plan or getting our insurance directly from the government, from that public option. One of the problems, though, with the public option, at least potentially, is that if the government and its insurance plan doesn't operate by the same rules and the same kind of competitive standards that private insurance companies do, then it could very easily devolve into a single-payer monopoly in the healthcare system because if the government public option is subsidized by taxpayers, and again, if it's to be insulated from uh, the types of kind of competitive standards that private issuers have to abide by, then there's a chance they can monopolize the entire playing field. Mm -hmm. They're not playing on a level playing field. The same thing's true in this debate. If CBDC becomes kind of like a public option or opening a bank account, but we don't force the Fed to operate by the same rules and standards that private banks do, then I'm worried that a lot of people might take their money out of private banks, put them in deposit at the Fed, and that could be really disastrous for the economy because private banks tend to do a much better job of making loans. They have a profit motive to make sure that they don't issue a whole bunch of bad loans, that they're investing in small businesses and new ventures that have the best chance of promoting growth in the American economy. I worry that we put that at risk if we introduce things like a retail form of CBDC and allow the Fed to play on a separate playing field that's not fair. Well, yeah, you mentioned Fed accounts, and I know you've written about Fed accounts in the past. And my thought is always sort of like, well, that's you know, the government's postal service doesn't sound like such a great idea. So I'm not sure that that banking from the the, the federal government is a great idea either. But we also mentioned that there's a wholesale potential here. And, and so if you could a little bit elaborate, tell us a little bit about what the wholesale alternative would be. Again, these are paths that might, you know, if, if, if we go forward with a CBD, a CB, digital dollar is what I'll say, um, the different possible paths for us. So a wholesale central bank digital currency basically just means that the Fed would offer its central bank digital currency only to other banks and fintech payment providers. Rather than offering it directly to you and me, it would basically keep the current relationship it has, which is only offering those accounts to banks and potentially, and this is one thing I would like to see, uh, fintech payment providers. So kind of new fintech companies, whether it's Venmo, Square Cash, Apple Pay, uh, PayPal, et cetera, um, having them be the ones who have the ability to open up CBDC accounts at the Fed. Um, this is my preferred approach, like I said. The reason I like this approach more is because it actually does a better job of maintaining competition while promoting innovation. In fact, it might even increase both competition and innovation because if they do what I just suggested, which is the Fed, instead of only allowing basically big banks or uh, you know, formally chartered banks, um, right now, the Fed only allows banks to have access at the Federal Reserve. There's some minor exceptions. We won't get into that, but it's basically a banker's bank. I would like to see them expand that access to these fintech companies I just mentioned, because I think those companies are very well positioned to do things that maybe currently big banks can't do economically. I think that those fintech companies have a comparative advantage, for instance, in offering services to people who are currently financially excluded that don't have a bank account, that don't have a savings account of any type, most people might be weary of opening up a bank account uh, at Chase or J.P. Morgan or Wells Fargo. But a lot of them have cell phones. Basically, everyone in the United States has a cell phone today. Mm -hmm. doesn't even have to be a smartphone necessarily, but most Americans have smartphones. And a lot of these fintech companies, instead of trying to get people to go to the bank and open an account, 
they brought the bank to you through apps like Venmo, Apple Pay, PayPal, et cetera. You now don't have to walk into a bank to have basic financial services to open up a savings account. And I would like to see with this wholesale CBDC idea, honestly, the Fed expand its offering so that it's not just banks who have access to opening accounts of the Fed, but also some of these companies as well, because I think that has the best potential to increase financial inclusion. If I can use another metaphor, I just use the public option to talk about retail CBDC. The analogy I like to think of when it comes to wholesale CBDC would be something like school choice. So in the education system, most people agree that we want everyone in the United States to have access to an education. But there's different ways that we can offer people an education. One of them would be to have um, basically say, okay, only the government's going to provide schools to kids. In America, we tend to not like having just one option. And so another way of offering education is to say, okay, we're going to have basically a public option in education. We're going to have public schools that are directly provided by the government themselves and run by the government itself. But we're also going to have private competition. We're going to have private schools, whether it's religious schools, whether it's um, you know, you have charter schools and a whole bunch of kind of innovations that people have more choices. I see that as being more what this wholesale central bank digital currency approach is. It's expanding the options that people have, not just using central bank, not just using private banks to open up bank accounts, but also having access to a lot of these new fintech companies. That's kind of my preferred approach because we as economists, we tend to say that more choices matter. The more choices that you give consumers, the more likely you're going to see good competition, great, good innovation, companies having to compete with each other to offer better services. I think that we have a better chance to do that if instead of the Fed trying to directly get involved in this game and potentially you know, reduce competition in the private sector, have it expand competition in the private sector by offering these wholesale services to more fintech companies. So let's get, so now that we've, talked what a, about what a, a digital dollar might be. Let, let's get into some of the uh, economic benefits or possible costs of, of this. And, and I think there's uh, three areas we want to touch on here. One's going to be what we'll call negative nominal interest rates. We'll have to explain that a little bit. And then there's this uh, reserve cur uh, currency status, uh, that, especially with competition between different nations that might go down this path. And then we want to talk about some privacy concerns. So first of all, I'll talk about negative nominal interest rates, because this is something that is really sort of more in this area of monetary policy and not necessarily any kind of interaction with individuals in the banking system or with using cash. But it is something that at least some macro monetary economists think might be a beneficial thing for, uh, from a policy standpoint. So if you could explain to us, first of all, what a negative nominal interest rate might be and why that might be something we could have possibly with a, a digital dollar. Right. So when you and I have deposit accounts at a bank, we typically get paid interest on those deposit accounts. Admittedly, it's not very much interest. It hasn't, banks haven't paid much more than about 0.5 to 1% interest over the past 20 or 30 years or so. But in theory, one of the reasons why you put a, your money in a bank and open up a deposit account is so that that money is not just sitting idle under your mattress, not earning any interest. You want your money to earn interest. Well, the idea of negative interest rate is something that a lot of macroeconomists have been intrigued by because right now, monetary policy suffers from what we in economics call a zero lower bank. In other words, whenever there's especially like a recession going on, Typically during a recession, the Fed wants to print more money in order to lower interest rates and give people an incentive, 
take out loans, if they want to start a new business or grow their company, buy a new house, buy a new car. Typically, that's kind of the mechanism through which monetary policy increases spending by lowering interest rates in the economy. The problem is interest rates can only fall to zero because as of right now, the Fed doesn't have the ability to have negative interest rates. It can drive interest rates as close to 0% as it can, but if the Fed did try to charge you a negative interest rate, and if your bank tried to charge you a negative interest rate on your deposit account, what would you do? You would just cash out. You'd take your money out because cash earns no interest. So you'd much rather, in other words, have cash in your mattress than have deposits in a bank where every year there's a negative 1% interest rate, for instance, mm -hmm. You're losing 1% of that deposit balance. So that's what we mean by the zero lower bound. In theory, interest rates can't fall below zero. That can't drive interest rates below zero because if they tried to, people could always cash out and just put cash under their mattress, and that'd be a disaster for the economy. There'd be bank runs and panics. There'd be no more private sector lending by private banks to private businesses. You'd get a replay of what we saw during the Great Depression. That'd be a terrible thing. So a lot of economists have kind of theoretically toyed around the idea of saying, okay, if we could just get rid of cash, but people didn't have the option of cashing out. If they only had digital forms of money, especially something like the CBDC that we're talking about, if people have nowhere to run, then we can actually charge them negative interest rates. If we wanted to avoid the zero lower bound and try to spur people to spend more and borrow more during a recession, we could say, okay, instead of having a 0% interest rate, we're going to charge you a negative 2% interest rate or a negative 3% interest rate and keep lowering and lowering it until people say, okay, I'm not keeping my money in the bank. I'm not going to save. I'm going to go out and spend more money and thereby, at least according to this idea, stimulate the economy. So that's one of the big arguments that you see in favor of CBDC, that it's hopefully a way to help get rid of cash and give monetary policy more tools and effectiveness. Um, as we can talk about soon, I have some skepticism about whether that's good for the economy in general and definitely whether it's good for consumers because I don't think yeah. consumers want to have fewer choices and have nowhere to run during the crisis. Well, and, and, and we, don't, uh, I don't, we don't need to get into all the details of monetary policy, but I think one, one thing to note about that is that there are many economists that, that come back and say they're not sure that the Federal Reserve makes things a, a lot better by trying to... Uh, anti-cyclical policies are trying to smooth out the economy through its monetary policy. And, and if you're doubtful of whether the, the Federal Reserve really should be doing a lot to try to stave off recessions as opposed to keeping the banking system healthy, then there, there's not a lot of, van, uh, of value in letting the Fed have an extra weapon here in its arsenal, is there? Right. Um, but you bring up a very good point, which is that a lot of economists realize that the Fed is capable of making mistakes itself. And so giving it more tools and potentially more ways to make mistakes might not necessarily be a good thing. I always tell my students when I teach money in banks, whenever I teach macroeconomics, that there's two types of errors that policymakers can make, both in terms of monetary policy and also in terms of fiscal policy, uh, whenever they're trying to counteract the recession. One of them are what I would call sense of commission, when the Fed actively creates a boom bus cycle by doing things like what a lot of economists would argue happened in the early to mid-2000s during the housing bubble, a lot of macroeconomists say, in hindsight, the Fed was printing too much money and keeping interest rates too low. So in other words, the Fed's sin was a set of commission at that time. It was actively contributing to the boom-bust cycle by printing too much money, keeping interest rates artificially low. The second type of mistake that central banks can make and also that uh, politicians can make when it comes to fiscal policy is sins of omission. 
which is basically not doing enough whenever a crisis does hit. So a good example of this would be the Great Depression. Whenever we teach about the Great Depression, one of the things that we typically say is that the Federal Reserve, the central bank, basically let the bottom fall out of the economy. And even though it had the ability to, whenever people were pulling cash out of the banking system and running on the bank, what the Fed should have done is acted as a lender of last resort, made sure that banks had enough cash on hand to alleviate people's concerns in the bank panic and make sure that well-run banks that were solvent, that had not been making bad loans, didn't go out of business simply because of a liquidity. Those are sins of omission. And both of those are things that basically central banks are capable of doing, making mistakes both of commission and omission. And that's one of the reasons why, once you realize that central banks aren't just always doing only good things, but they're also capable of making mistakes that amplify the business cycle, then it gives you a little bit more of a humble view of what central banks should do, understanding the limits of central banking policy. And a lot of economists, and you know, I'm not saying this is a universal position, but a lot of us who study monetary economics say the best thing for the Fed to do is keep it simple. Focus on the things that it can control. Have simple guidelines that it follows. And try not to deviate from that too much or try to overcorrect. Because a lot of times when the Fed tries to play too active of a role in the economy, it creates more problems than it's worth. I want to use another kind of metaphor real quick that I like to use with my students, and that's the driving. So one of the pieces of advice that you probably give your kids whenever they turn 16, they start to drive, is that if they ever do kind of go off the road a little bit, what's the worst thing they can do? Overcorrect. Try to snap the steering wheel over because then you run the risk of potentially flipping the car, getting stuck in kind of a rut with one of your tires, and basically creating a much worse problem for yourself. Usually, if you go off the road a little bit, you want to try to stay calm, stay the course, not go any further off the road, but kind of gradually get back onto track, right? That's true of monetary policy, too. And I worry a lot of times with monetary policy that we're too quick to overreact. The Fed is amplifying the business cycle, both through the sense of omission and commission, when in reality, what we need is guardrails that simplify the Fed's task. We only have a couple minutes left here, but I do want to get into some of the, the privacy issues that have been raised, because uh, uh, cash, in one level, allows people to take uh, make some anonymous uh, purchases. Uh, you, you, don't, you can't uh, track cash very well. And that has advantages and disadvantages. And so... Talk a little bit about uh, the, the potential loss of privacy or anonymity and, and whether that, that could be a, a, an important consideration. Yeah, I think this is one of the best critiques of central bank digital currency is that even though central banks have tried to say that they're going to allow for a certain degree of privacy, ultimately this is opening an account at the government's bank, at a central bank. And there's a lot of reasons to think that governments are going to use that power if they have more control over people's accounts and over the banking system um, to kind of use as a backdoor to, uh, you know, basically impinge on people's financial freedom and their privacy. So it's certainly one of my concerns. It's a big concern that even though you've mentioned a number of central banks have talked about CBDC, none of them have found an effective way to earn the public's trust yet. There's been examples of countries like Ecuador that have already experimented with something like CBDC, the central bank directly offering digital accounts. And it failed within three years in Ecuador. It lasted from 2015 to 2018 because of a lack of public trust, because people valued their financial privacy and they didn't trust that the government um, was going to respect their privacy or offer better services in the private banking sector. So those are very valid concerns. And at some level, we can't avoid if, if people have some privacy, then they will sometimes, uh, some bad people or, or some people will use things uh, that, that privacy to 
help fund things that we don't like, whether it be terrorism or, or buy illegal drugs or, 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 or uh, uh, child pornography. There's limited ability to, to crack down on that without also any ability to, to violate privacy in other ways, right? Right. I always say I worry about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's true that if you have more digital payments and things like cryptocurrencies, then that will help sometimes people in the illicit market and the underground economy more easily facilitate transactions. But that's 1% of transactions. You don't want to hurt the 99% of people who would benefit from these technologies by making it harder for them to transact. And so that's something that I definitely like to remind people of is don't throw the baby out of the bathwater when it comes to these regulations. Well, I, I think that's a good point, a great point to uh, uh, finish with here. Well, thanks so much, Scott, for coming on and talking about this uh, with us. And thank you all for joining us. Join us again next time on the next E-Conversations. This has been E-Conversations, a joint production of Troy Turgeon Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. Support for the Double Dome podcast comes from the Sorrell College of Business at Troy University, where students become geeks, an acronym for globally aware, ethical decision makers, engaged with the business community, knowledgeable to compete, and successful in business and life. More information at troy.edu business.